and we are live. Welcome to today's episode of MicroConf on Air. As always, I'm your host, Rob Walling. So every couple Wednesdays, a couple Wednesdays a month at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, we live stream for 30 minutes and we cover topics related to building and growing ambitious SaaS startups that bring us freedom and purpose and allow us to value and maintain healthy relationships. We believe that showing up every day and shipping that next feature, that next piece of marketing copy or closing that next sale is the way to build a sustainable company. Thanks for joining me again. It's been a few weeks since our last episode. We had one back at the beginning of January talking about our SaaS podcast awards. And if you missed that one, it was pretty fun. You can check it out on YouTube, youtube.com slash microconf. Be sure to subscribe there. Today, I'm really excited to have a guest back on the show is what I'm going to say. I don't recall if Steli has been on MicroConf on air before or um, if he's just been on Startups for the Rest of Us. I know he's been on two or three episodes of that over the years. So if you haven't heard of Steli Efti, he's the co-founder of Close.com. So they're at Close, C-L-O-S-E, uh, on Twitter and Close.com on the internet. They are sales enablement software. They're CRM software and they've been around most, they're actually a mostly bootstrap company. They raised a small round of funding back in the day and they have since run it more like a profitable business. And Delhi is known for his reputation as a, a sales leader, a sales advisor. He does a lot of talks. He's done a number of highly rated talks at MicroConf over the years. And I'm really excited to dive in to your questions with him today. If you have any questions. So now I'm just seeing the lower third where Xander has called me Bob Rawling. I appreciate that, Xander. So that there's a little story there. Someone mentioned me and I, it was like a roll up of marketing advice and they put my name as Bob Rawling. And so I'm never going to live that one down. But Steli, obviously known literally around the, the startup world, the entire world as such a, a sales leader, that it's great to have him on here. If you have any questions about sales really anything across that. It's in his wheelhouse. And per his usual, I'm sure today he will be giving you all the books he's written over the years. He has tons of, of books on sales that he and his team have put together. So with that, let's welcome Mr. Steli Efti to the show. Hey, Bob. Sir. It's a great pleasure to be on the show. So embarrassing. It's <laughs> uh, so great. I'll never forget that. I was like, Bob Rowling? What is this? Yeah, well, Rob changed his name. Yeah, I've never been on air. I think I've been on the startup for the rest of us a number of times, and then obviously microconf a number of times. But this is uh, this is an on air premiere, so I'm super psyched. Excellent. And so in the audience, you are witnessing that. So be sure to get your questions into the Slack microconf connect. We now have more than 1,300 founders and aspiring founders. If you're not there, head to microconfconnect.com to sign up. But if you're in there, go to the microconf on air channel and um, you can post any questions for us. I have a question that I received from a Startups for the Rest of Us listener, and it's about sales. So I wanted to kick us off today to seed the program, and then we'll go from there with listener questions. All right, so this listener says, I've been running a kid's sports business for the last 10 years with another partner that has been mostly running by itself for the last two years. I'm not I don't know if that context is helpful or not, but a few questions for you. The question about sales is any tips on how I can use to my advantage the fact that I am a client as well as a co-founder in marketing sales or during onboarding calls. So he runs a kid's sports business and then he's building software for people who, who run kids sports businesses. And I believe these, I don't know if these are leagues, if it's league management software or what exactly it is, probably not that relevant. His real question is how can I use the fact that I am both the salesperson 
And I also am a, an end user, a customer of it. And he says, I have had extensive success in marketing and sales in the sports and leisure industry, selling an in-person service in the B2B space. So let's start with that. He has a follow-up question, but I'm curious, Steli, have you, I guess you experienced this yourself probably when you were back selling clothes, because you were both not only a customer, but a salesperson of it. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, I think the answer is clearly yes. You can use it to your advantage that you're the founder selling the product for a number of simple reasons. Number one, we all like to talk to people with authority. We all like to talk to people that can make decisions, that have influence. And nobody has more authority in, over your business than you as the founder, right? So you, you can't go way higher than that. So customers love to get the attention of a founder for obvious reasons. This is somebody that is probably more knowledgeable about the product, about the space, has more authority over the promises he or she makes. And if I want somebody to listen to me for the feedback I have to give or for my needs and my desires, who better to talk to than one of the founders? I would definitely use, you know, or at least realize the fact that when you offer to jump on a sales call or a product demo or answer a support ticket, there are founders out there that are hiding the fact that they're the founder. They feel like, oh, if people would know that as a founder, I'm answering support tickets, or as a founder, I'm giving a product demo to a trial user, they will surely understand that my business is not massive and they will not want to buy from me. Nothing could be further from the truth. People love to talk to people with authority. People love to talk to the founders uh, of a business. So make sure to use that fact and be upfront about it and not hide it. And that's about it. There's not really much more to it. You don't have to overplay this. Obviously, nobody likes people bragging. I don't need to hear you've been a founder many times and you're the founder of this business. And when you founded it out of your garage, all that is meaningless to me. That's not making my life better. So don't tell me your whole story of what it means to be a founder, but use the fact that you're the most influential person probably in this business. And I get to get your time and your attention. And that's probably going to be something that most people will be excited about. I like it. I can chime in too with in very early days when I was doing drip sales calls still before we, we hired someone to take those over, I would use my, I would definitely use the, the influence I had as a founder, but also as an end user, I would, when I was walking them through on a demo, I'd say on my, on my other product, we do, we use, the, I love this feature and this is why we built it. And this is like a great way to, for a SaaS app to blah, blah, blah. So I assuming the person was also running a SaaS app that was similar. It was like a way that I could connect with them and show them that I'm in the same boat and I'm maybe less of a salesperson than almost a colleague or like a comrade, like a, a friend in arms who's also trying to grow his business using this tool. And oh, I happen to be the founder and I'm selling it, but it, it worked out, uh, usually worked out pretty well. All right, let me see our next question here. It's an interesting one. If you were to start a CRM system today from scratch, how would you try to launch and build it up in today's world. And this is from Max Sinclair, a big fan and a user of clothes. What, are, we, are you trying to give him advice on how to start a competitor? Is that what we're looking for? I'm curious, oh no, wait. He, yeah, it's CRM, Xander, not CMS. So the lower third is wrong, but I, I'm mm. less about building. I am curious, there's two things, right? Once, you, once you're software, you get five, six, seven years old, there's tends to be something in it where you're like, ooh, I wish we hadn't made that decision and it's really hard to fix now. So I think I'll couch it as, is there any big thing or one thing in clothes that you wish you could change that maybe technically is pretty hard? And then two, if you were to launch into a crowded space like CRM today, 
or an ESP space, or there's all these spaces that are really crowded. How would you go about doing it? Let's phrase those, the questions like that. Yeah, so I'll address the, the second one first, because many times I've told people and I've thought about this, that if we had, if we wanted to launch close today, the way that we launched it in January 2013, I don't think it would have gone that well. We had, back in January 2013, there were a lot of things that were different in the world. One, for us especially, one, sales was really an underdeveloped area in the startup world worldwide. There was a a, a, a prevalent culture in Silicon Valley that was like, the future of B2B will not include any salespeople, anything related to sales. Everything will just be self-serve, bottom-up. And so don't worry about sales, just worry about marketing and virality and, and, and all that stuff. And so there were not, there was very little content around sales for software and for startups, especially content that was like, not super outdated from the 80s. And, and so we launched Close from a marketing perspective, a go-to-market perspective, by teaching a space, a skill set, and an approach and a philosophy around selling that nobody else had attacked. So we got a huge amount of audience right off the bat and a lot of traffic to our articles and authority. We became an authority pretty quickly as if you want to learn anything about sales, go to the Close people. Like they know what they're talking about and they have good stuff around that. Obviously, we created a monster in that we changed the culture, like we're a part of changing the culture and educating the world of software on selling. But also there's been such an explosion of content around this that today, if you wanted to do the same thing, it'd be much more difficult, much more difficult to actually stand out. In almost any field, I would assume, just the content ramp up in the last 10 years has been so dramatic, it's more difficult to stand out than it used to be. And then there's a million other things that we were lucky and unique about our timing and everything that today would be hard to replicate. But the, the basic principles, if you take away the actual playbook that we used step-by-step, step, if you take the, the, the approach that we took, I think that approach will always work, which was we built something for ourselves with a very differentiated perspective on who the user was, what their problem was, and how to solve that problem in a way that's more valuable to them. And then we were not afraid to be loud and distinct about who we are and who we aren't. And we were lucky that we hit a nerve, that we were right with these ideas. You can do all this, and if you're wrong, nobody cares still, right? <laughs> if like you've built something that is not doesn't have product market fit. It doesn't matter that it's differentiated. It doesn't matter that you've niched it down. It doesn't matter that you have a strong identity. People still not get value from it, so it's, it won't succeed. But for us, we're lucky that we were able to hit a nerve in the space because we had unique insight about the customer, the user, and we developed a solution that, that really worked in a in powerful way. The other thing that I'll say is that we were much more direct about who we were, but also who we weren't. And I think that in a crowded space is really important. The tendency that most founders have is to go very broad. Let's not say no to anybody. Let's not upset anybody. And so when you talk to prospects in the early days, they ask you, are you going to build this and this feature? And you go, yes. And that feature, yes. And do you have this? Well, not now, but we're building it. You just want to appease and please everybody. And we went the exact other way. I remember from day one, like half the people that I was talking to that would sign up for trials, I would tell, no, we're never going to build this. Nope, this is not what we're going to do. I understand. Why do you want this feature? Because we think this is unnecessary. <laughs> like we'd have a lot of these like unpleasant conversations. 
but they always led to very strong relationships. People would either understand that what we built isn't for them, but then they would be surprised and tell other people about our honesty and our approach. Or very often, to my surprise, people would cave and go, you know what? I don't need all these things anyways. Like, I don't really care about them. And what you are building is valuable enough. I'm going to buy it anyways. And so I think, especially when you're in a crowded space, you don't want to pretend that you're everything to everybody. You really want to be courageous enough and honest enough to say no a lot and to say what you are, but also what you aren't. In terms of what I wish we would have done differently from a technological point of view or feature point of view, there's many things. I, I think a lot of it, a lot of the things we have painfully corrected over the past couple of years. So there's nothing that stands out right now, but I'll tell you one of the biggest wastes of development that we've made was where we we went through a sprint in, I don't know when it was, 2016 maybe, where we wanted to significantly improve our reporting. And so for one and a half years, we had all these reporting features that we had built. And I just wish we would have, instead of, that was the only time in our product development where we just looked around the space and we said, said, what are customers saying they want and what is everybody else doing? Let's just do that versus asking ourselves what fits into our product philosophy. What is our unique take on this? What kind of reporting do we want to have? And what do we think is bullshit about reporting that we're not just going to copy? We didn't, we, that was the one time we weren't as mindful and as present in our decision-making. And we ended up building a bunch of things back then that we hated ourselves and that we were embarrassed about. And that then we had to painfully redo <laughs> to make them really great. So it's that it's easier than you think to to go down the wrong road if you're not really present and mindful and thoughtful about things. And then you waste so much time in product development. I wish we hadn't made that mistake, but what can you do? Yeah, I find that founders who don't have a vision and an opinion about their own software and take this listen to the customer thing too far, they build big pieces of shit. It's just an amalgam of features and all types of stuff. And, and to give you examples, of, I think of Salesforce. I often think of an app called Infusionsoft. And if you use those apps, they're just rough. I know they're powerful. They can do a lot of things. And those are big companies. So you could say, didn't they do something right? It's yeah, but they also went into, they got into markets really early. They raised enormous amounts of money. You're probably, if you're watching this, you're probably not in that space. You're probably bootstrapped or mostly bootstrapped with a small amount of funding, scrappy team. And part of what you're saying is having that opinion. And even like you said, instead of going broad, it's an opinion of the, what the product should and a vision of what the product should be. And then also being outspoken about that on your homepage or on, in your marketing material or in your sales calls of it's positioning. It's no, we're not going to be this whole thing. We're not going to head, uh, head on head, head to head connect or compete with Salesforce. We are going to go over in this corner here. And if you don't like these things about Salesforce or about any other insert XYZ, that's we're the tool for you. And maybe that market is only, Maybe it's only a million dollar market today or a $3 million market. It's small, but hey, you're bootstrap, mostly bootstrap. Get there, then figure out where do I go next? Because then the doors will open. You'll start to see, oh, there's these edges. There's these new things that are coming around we can add. That's, I think that's, yeah. Is that in line with what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Amen. All right. James Kennedy asks, James Kennedy is a microcom speaker, many time microcom attendee. He says, how do you know when to put a fork in a cold outreach campaign? 
And I think he's saying, how do you know when to call it done rather than an actual, I was thinking of a programming fork, but it, how do you know when to kill a cold <laughs> outreach campaign? I think is what he asked. Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. Always, it depends. But to give you maybe some food for thought, I would say that you have to think about a sales approach or sales model, just like you would think uh, about a product. In the early days, the goal really shouldn't be to get to instant success. The goal really should be to generate insights that then you can feed into iterating, improving, or changing the way you sell or the way you reach out to people, or the way they prospect or whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. So I would say that, let's say we're doing a cold outreach campaign. Let's say it's an email campaign. I'm sending cold emails. My, I've always taught founders to do less volume, but more hands-on quality and to go step-by-step. Step. The first thing that I'm trying to do is to see, can I find the right people to reach out to in the first place? How do I know that? Maybe a first sign for that is, can I get people to open the email that I'm sending? And because if I'm not able to accomplish that, every other step afterwards will never work. If nobody opens the email, it doesn't matter how much I improve the graphics of the PDFs I attach, right? nobody's ever gonna look at it. The first thing that I'll try to do is, how can I get people to open the email? Now, let's say nobody's opening the email or very few people are opening the email. My next approach would be, well, let's find out why, right? There's a number of reasons why this is happening. It could be that we have the wrong email address. It could be that we're sending it at the wrong time. More likely, the subject line sucks. There's something here that we need to find out. So oftentimes, we would call people that didn't open the email not to now sell them on the product, but to find out why. And we would just give a call and tell people, hey, Rob, I sent you an email yesterday about XYZ. You're probably busy. You've not seen it. I just need, as a founder, I just need one minute of advice here. I'll let you go on with your day. Did you see the email and thought this was not relevant for you, so you never even bothered to open it? Or did you open it and thought you hated it? Can you just give me a little bit of advice? I'm struggling here. I'm trying to make this work. What about the email that I sent you yesterday made it so that you didn't respond and it wasn't valuable to you? And again, not everybody will give you an answer, but some people will. And usually there's gold in those answers. There's something insightful, especially once you heard the same thing twice or three times, it, it, it makes click and you go, oh, I need to fix X or Y or Z. I need to, we need to adjust something. I would say that I would kill a campaign once I either learned from some of these insights that this type of outreach will not work either for our company or for the type of customer we're going after, or I'm being, I've been stuck in not able to generate new insights. We're not generating results and we're not learning anything. If you're not generating sales and you're not learning anything, you can only do this for so long and then it's just a pure waste of time. There's no, being persistent will not get you anywhere by doing something that generates zero new knowledge and zeroed results, right? At some point, you'll have to stop and try something else and see if that will either generate the outcomes you want or at least learnings, insights, intel that can help you adjust what you do. That would be my very rough framework uh, for this. And if you want to know like benchmarks, I would always go to either competitors and see what they're doing or even better, if you can find companies that don't compete with you but are selling to a similar market, maybe you reach out to them and you have a friendly conversation, again, maybe founder to founder, and you say, hey, I'm starting off, I'm selling to a similar customer. 
What are the results that you guys saw in the early days? What is advice that you wish you'd had when you started? Learn from people that have been or have visited your future because they've been already there a year ago, two years ago, and are not directly competing with you. So maybe they'll be kind and share some information with you. Awesome. Thanks, sir. I love that framework. I have the next question. This is actually from, from me. Books. People like to read books about things. And what are some of the best sales books that you know about? And feel free to plug your own books um, because you have many of them. This may be a tee up to do that. There's definitely a tee up because here's what I'll say. If people want to read books about selling and they are micro-conf people, right? They're like bootstrappers, uh, micropreneurs. I don't think there's any books out there that are probably, you know, more useful than what we've put together at Close. You can get all those books for free. Just send me an email, stelly at close.com. I'll send you a link so you can download all of them as PDFs and, and read them. And they're very kind of structured. There's books about sales hiring. There's books about how to get the first 100 customers. There's books about sales emails, sales calls, how to give demos. Like you can pick and choose what's most important and relevant to you and get very actionable advice within a few hours of reading. This has been one of those questions that's always that I've always sucked at because people have been asking me for my favorite sales books for years. And the, the weird truth is that I don't have a list of favorite sales books. I'm sure there are many great sales books out there, but you wouldn't be, it might not be surprising to know that when all you do all day long is talk about sales and figure out new things to teach about sales and that then you're not, at the end of the day, I'm not like craving more sales knowledge. I'm like, let me read all the books. There's, there, there was a time 15 years ago where I read everything that was out there about sales. And I'm sure I've internalized a lot of it. And a lot of the things that I'm teaching have been taught to me in some ways, either through books or through other means. But I don't remember any book standing out as like the, this book really taught me something or this book really stands out as something I would recommend to everybody. So uh, my answer here has always been shitty. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, I can't really give you a great recommendation. There was a time where we would recommend Predictable Revenue as a book for people to read. But those days are over. That book has been overused. Now, if you do enterprise sales in a super awkward, in a super weird niche that is almost unaffected about software, maybe predictable revenue is still a good book, but anybody else, the, the tactics there are almost overused and, and now I, I don't find it as, as useful anymore. And I, but I like your answer because I encounter this too. People ask me like, what are some great books you can recommend about starting startups or bootstrapping startups? And I struggle because I read the ones that come out and frankly, a lot of them I don't agree with. So I, how can I, I'll read half of it or I read the whole thing, but like half of it, I'm like, this advice doesn't work or this is bad advice. And so you become, I feel like as you have become more opinionated about sales and as you know, I've become more opinionated about entrepreneurship, it's almost like you see the flaws in all these things. And so you go write your own damn books. And that really is, you're not trying to sell anything. You literally just have a bunch of books that you've written because those are your opinions. And the best books in your opinion on sales are those because they match what you believe. So I don't take that as a, as a cop out or anything. So I'm actually, I'm a little, I'm so frustrated with it that I am working on another book. I'm saying it on the record here, but I'm working on another book Ooh. and it's on this topic. It's on bootstrapping SaaS in essence, or most bootstrapping and mostly bootstrapping SaaS. And it's because I get the question enough. And my first book is, it's old enough and it was focused more on really small ideas. And I want to talk about seven and, you know, eight figure bootstrap companies now. And so I'm, I'm going to be doing a similar thing because I want to be able to answer that question too with something that I can really heartily recommend. Don't get me wrong. There are some good resources out there specifically on, on bootstrapping. But yeah, no, I like that, that advice. Last question as we wrap up, I think we have maybe two minutes left. I'm wondering 
I have this question. This may be an obvious answer, but there are certain companies that don't need to do outbound at all. I'm doing a Okay, I need to go sign for a package. This is amazing. So here's what I'm going to do, Steli. <laughs> okay. I'm going to ask Give you this question. question. I'll be right back. Here's I got the question. You. It's there's some companies that have so much inbound lead flow that they don't need to do outbound. Is that a good position to be in or should you always be doing outbound reach? I'll be back in 30 seconds. All right, go sign your package. I would say, again, it depends. Close itself. We do only inbound. We, when we started... Inbound flow was so good that we said, we're going to do inbound for a little while and probably within the first six to 12 months, inbound is not going to grow as much anymore and we're going to have to start building an outbound sales team. That's been seven years now and we still haven't gotten to the point where inbound hasn't been continuously growing so significantly for us that we've had to focus on outbound. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I do think everything has pros and cons and you should just be aware of where you are in the space. The beautiful thing about Outbound is that you can be very proactive. And if there's certain type of companies that you want as customers that would really benefit you if they were your customers, the beautiful thing in Outbound is you don't have to wait around and hope that one day they'll read your ebook or they'll you know, type in a search term and find you. You can go proactively and get that business as a customer. That's the beauty of Outbound. You don't have to wait around, you can be very proactive. It does give you a superpower. It is a channel that once you make it work for you, it is a very proactive channel. With inbound, it takes much longer to build up. It's also, you cannot target as specifically. You can't say here is our wish list of a, these hundred companies we want to acquire as customers, and then we'll write content that they will definitely read and fill out forms and get in touch with us. You can't do that. But Vice versa, with Outbound, you always have the struggle of channels, right? You're doing something, let's say you send lots of emails, all of a sudden these emails start ending up in spam folders or people start filtering out their email more or your subject lines they used to kill now don't work at all anymore because everybody uses those subject lines. So you always have these kind of challenges that people are protecting themselves more and more from interruptions uh, in the business context. But then in inbound, you might have the problem of Google, right? Maybe you rely too much on, on organic search or maybe you rely too much on social media and all of a sudden Facebook changes the algorithm or Twitter changes the algorithm or Google changes their, their search algorithm, boom, 30% of your traffic is gone. <laughs> what do you do now? So it's always good as a business when you don't fully rely on just purely one channel. I'll say that. It's good to be able to be building a second channel, a third channel. The more channels you have, the less you are at risk that if that channel changes, your business is going to be in trouble. But you don't have to do upbound sales. There's companies that are very successful purely doing inbound. We're one of them. Although we, we know a lot about upbound, we have not had to use it, use that knowledge and think it always depends on the kind of business you have, the kind of product you have, the kind of customer you go after. It's all good. Yep. And that's in that context, that's where if those channels start to dry up, whether it's an outbound or an inbound channel, it gets cut off. It's, I think it's easy to rely on those things and to not think about, hey, shall we start building a brand here? And shall we start teaching to where, the, a lot of people seek out clothes.com because of the Steli brand, right? Because they see you teaching and they know that you are the expert in the space. And that may not be possible for everyone. Maybe you're not the expert in the space. That may not be possible in every space. Some spaces, they don't care about who the expert is and it's a commodity space or whatever. But 
longer term, if you are, look, if you're going to build a business doing a half million dollars a year, a million dollars a year, great. You can do that with SEO. You can do that with AdWords. We see, I see dozens of these businesses, but if you really do want to build a, a SaaS company that's going to last 10, 15 years, that's going to be five, 10, $20 million, it's possible to do that a lot of different ways, but I, I would, I posit that a lot of that, the building a, a brand around that to where you are no longer a commodity in the space and you are teaching and you are viewed as an expert, whether it's you or someone on your team or your whole team or whatever, Stripe doing this, where they're putting out all this content. It's no one person's name under that, but you start to see the Stripe press the publications come out and there's a, a lot behind it, much like with your books. With that, we're at time, sir. It's been great having you today. Thank you so much. Folks can follow you at Steli on the Twitters and they can email you Steli at close.com if they want to get those fancy eBooks. I believe I still have my copies. I might need to refresh my, my sales chops here pretty soon. So right, thanks again for joining right me, man. Really appreciate it. Hey, Bob, it was an honor and a pleasure as always. Never going to live it down. <laughs> hey, thank you so much awesome. for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. Awesome. Yeah, it was great. Great talking to you. All right, as we roll out. So next week, the same time, same place, the State of Independent SaaS live stream will be happening. You can go to stateofindiesass.com and we are going to be releasing the 2021 State of Independent SaaS report where we asked a bunch of questions and we have an 86 page report that we're going to be talking through. Not all of it, obviously, it's only about a 30 or 40 minute live stream, but stateofindiesass.com if you're interested. Thank you so much to Hay and Stripe for supporting MicroConf. It's great to have you here and I'll see you again next week. Same time, same place.